0: Howdy gang, thank you for tuning in to Back Country and Barbell. Today we have a special episode. I am joined by Brett King of Tail Out Anglers to talk um, sea run cutthroat and other fun fishing facts and experiences that you can gain um, by utilizing his services. And um, hey, fly fishing in general, um, uh, Brett in Tail Out Anglers, they're based out of Seattle, And guys, look, uh, two special sponsors of the show today. One, we're just going to kick it out to Tailout Anglers. They're a great local um, guide service here in the Puget Sound. If you're looking to come to the Pacific Northwest, heck, if you're looking to guide in Alaska or or go out um, on on other big old trips, uh, contact Brett. It's uh, tailoutanglers.com. Please, guys, go check them out. Brett, actually, at the end of the show makes a really great point that amidst all the craziness that's going on as we come out of um, as we come out of the, uh, the COVID situation, do your best to support local fly shops. Maybe also take that a step further and do your best to support local guides and services to get out in the woods and get on the water guys. In particular, if you go to, um, Brett's website, tailoutanglers.com, I'll tell you right now, man, click on the guided fishing trips and you'll see that the Brett, he's going winter steelheading. Dang it. He's uh, doing the cutthroat year round. Uh, in the puget sound he's doing stuff on the yakima river summer steelhead you know doing cascade mountain trips uh southwest alaska trips he's going all over the place in fact um i will be heading out with brett um on two trips this summer one that's discussed where we get into the topic of the day sea run cutthroat and also another where man i love to hike i love to trail run as you guys know and uh Brett does these really cool Cascade Mountain trips, so we're going to be hiking and boulder, jumping, and those sorts. So um, check them out, man. Find your local guide. If it's not tail out anglers, um, find one by you. Take the family fishing and uh, get outdoors. Other great sponsor of the show, guys, Ellsworth Socks. Guys, talk about local. Another local company. Um, they're based right out of here in Gig Harbor offering you the most advanced socks in the game. If you want to keep your feet dry, they're the best. If you want to keep them warm, they're the best, guys. There's a bunch of different options. And one thing I didn't even know is at Ellsworth, they give you this crazy guarantee that you can for you can buy their socks and for two years, hike, run, walk, climb, ruck, whatever else you want to do in our socks to see if you like them. If within that time you're not satisfied, let them know and they will send you another pair of your choice. How about that? That's ridiculous. Um, What an unbelievable guarantee. They must believe in their product. I believe in their product or I wouldn't be talking about it with you. We've had Pete Dahlgren on the show. Guys, we need to get you in those socks. So check them out. Um, It's pretty cool. If you want to check out that guarantee and other information about their socks, go to EllsworthSocks.com. And remember, if you do make a purchase, use code B. A N D B twenty to get twenty percent off. I did that myself this weekend. Again, uh, support local folks around you. There's my kiddos getting crazy, um, but uh, support your support your local shops right now. Support your local businesses as we all come out of quarantine. And uh, hey, man. Also, do your best to train, hunt, and live your best life possible. Right now, you can do that by enjoying this episode. Again, we have Brett Wedeking of Tailout Anglers to talk sea run cutthroat, to talk about fly fishing, and um, to talk about uh, what makes a feller fishy. So uh, enjoy it, get after it, and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and remember, train, hunt, and live. Howdy, gang. Thanks for tuning to Back Country and Barbells. Joe shamanic here. Uh I have Brett, Brett, say the last name again, Weddeky? Weddeking. Weddeking, Weddeking. Um, cool, uh, Brett from Tail Out Anglers. Um, I, have a, uh, I have a cool trip planned with him, maybe multiple this summer, and uh might be my new fishing buddy here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, Brett, man, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to uh, you about cutthroat today and whatever else comes up.
0: Yeah, that's it. You know, cutthroat's a really cool fish. Um, uh, You know, as we talked about before, it's just uh, I heard about it right when I came out here. And, and, um, you know, interestingly enough, there's a movie that gets everybody into fly fishing. I mean, how many guys have gotten into your boat and they're like, I saw a river runs through it, and now I want to fly fish. I mean, is that common for you?
1: Um. It's not as common as it was. You know, that movie's, what, 25, yeah, 30, 30 years old now. But, yeah. I mean, it's still referred to, you know, in the fly fishing industry as, as sort of like before the movie and after the movie. It's still like a legendary kind of thing. And Yeah. It definitely still, I mean, it, it's still a, a a topic of conversation among, you know, new anglers and, and old anglers. I mean, all sorts of places. But And it's kind of, you know, cliched and among certain segments of the fly fishing world too. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, regardless, it's a landmark in the fly fishing world.
0: But, and, but I bring it up because, you know, my first fishing trip was actually in Missoula, Montana. It was actually, uh-huh. um, in Stevensville, which is, oh, yeah. it runs it's the Bitterroot. I mean, that's where that, a lot of that movies actually, uh, you know, it's where the stories come from. I mean, I've, I've been on some yep. of those hikes. They even talk about Belagic Creek and some of those places. And, uh, but interestingly enough, when I was out there again fishing Belotic Creek and nymphing through there, I wasn't I wasn't doing grand backcasts. And it actually wasn't until I actually came out here on the sound fishing on the beach trying to fight wind and getting into open spaces where I actually was doing some of that traditional casting that that you see kind of highlighted in that film.
1: Yeah, um You know, a lot of, I mean, trout fishing, you know, flats, blue water, whatever it is, it's uh, a lot of it is not as, you know, pretty and esoteric as, you know, that movie or or sort of traditional fly fishing who likes to make it seem, um, you know, that's reserved for dry fly fishing and, you know, dry fly fishing for trout specifically, which is a very, uh, you know, it's still very much a sought after thing, but, um, you know, trout feed the vast majority of the time underwater, so like you referred to, nymphing is is more common and often more effective, but dry fly fishing is often what people search out and seek, you know, as as the the epitome of the sport. Um, But, you know, to each their own, right? I mean, everybody's gonna find their niche and find what they wanna do, and uh, as long as you're having fun and doing it in a responsible way, I mean, then, uh, you know supply fishing's got something for everybody
0: get some right brother so uh so quick question for you as we get the chat started um uh, i I think it'd be interesting just to know uh, there's lots of things to get into there's lots of things to dedicate your life towards um what what was it about fly fishing that you know because you've been at this for 20 plus years guiding in this area so uh so why fly fishing i mean and and such a specific such a specific thing to dedicate your uh your your life practice to uh
1: it's a good question i mean i um you know, growing up, I started fishing with my dad when I was, you know, before I can remember, um, you know, gear fishing. And, and uh, um, you know, he did a little fly fishing too. He did a lot of, you know, gear fishing, hunting, you know, all sorts of outdoor photography, lots of pursuits. And uh, I did a little fly fishing, you know, when I was in my early teens and kind of played around. And then late in the end of high school, I met a, a, who's a guy who's now my best friend and uh, he worked at a fly shop, and. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of friends who were into the outdoors, and, uh, you know, he just said, yeah, let's go fishing. I'll, I'll, uh," you know, I said, yeah, I fly fish sort of, and he said, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I'll teach you what you need to know, and we'll go fishing, and, um, you know, so from there, it was kind of just this big, you know, light bulb, and I was like, oh, this is what fly fishing is, like, this is what I want to do, and just the connection to the, to the outdoor world, right, it's just a vehicle to experience public lands and wild places, and, you know, to be happy, and, See I don't know, the geography of the world and animals and you know all the cool stuff and uh, I kind of never looked back. Uh, I got a job at a fly shop and started guiding part time and you know guided in Alaska and uh, you know i just trying to dedicated my life to fly fishing because I knew I wasn't going to be you know in an office sitting behind a computer and um, here we are you know 20 years later.
0: Very cool and I'll say you know as a guy who's kind of a fly fishing hobbyist for some reason. You know, I have, you know, I have traditional gear and and bait casting setups for the kids and we get out there and you know, it's fun to put a worm on the hook and it's fun to watch the kids get excited about it and yeah. No no matter what's on the hook, I get excited for it, but I will say like there's a there's a certain draw to fly fishing for me in particular. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure if it's just like the demands of it, I think are more tactical or more difficult in the sense where there's a technique involved with the casting or you know, to, I can remember, you know, I, I remember fishing a lot, but I can I can remember the moment I hooked up in Yellowstone on a dry fly with a little rainbow trout. And I can remember just feeling, dang it, it was cool because I saw like a white fly kind of buzz by me and I pulled my line in. I tried to match it best as I could. And I don't know, it just seemed to be a more of a connection and, a, and, a, and an interesting thing that kind of grabbed me just a little bit more. Um Th- then than I get with you know kind of cast around with traditional gear I, it's just it's just one of those things that I don't know how to describe but it's just just a little different it's just a little bit better um, uh, c- can you, c- and I bring that up because you mentioned mm-hmm. connection um, can you dive into a little bit more in, in your regards about that you know setting up that connection with the fish or the fishing for you that would just again make that sell a little bit more about why get fly fishing a try for folks who haven't?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, it's complicated. I think it's different for everybody, right? Um, You know, I mean, I think if you're a gear angler or, you know, bait angler, I grew up, you know, fishing gear. I still do a little bit, honestly. Um, It's fun. Uh, Fly fishing is just kind of, the, you know, the next step or a different step, you know, into a different world. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's more complicated than gear fishing. In some ways, it's it's simpler, you know, which is, um, for some people, the simplicity of it, of just dry fly fishing for trout, right, is, is, a, is part of the, the deal. And some people get really technical about it. Uh, but, you know, that's like I was saying, fly fishing has something to, to offer everyone. Um, you know, whether you're an urban angler and you want to fish for carp in the LA River, or you want to go to, you know, far-flung reaches of Mongolia and fish for Taman, Um You know, most people have some sort of opportunity to fly fish within, you know, a short distance of their home uh, at least in North America. And, uh, you know, you can travel around the world as well. And, um, you know, for me, you when know, I talk about connection, it's it's connection to the, the, you know, the wild world or what's left of it and trying to, you know, trying to absorb as much of that as possible. And a lot of it's about conservation too. You know, I mean, the, the more invested you are in wild places and public lands and, you know, the, the Denzian, Denizens uh, of those lands and, and waters, um, the more you're going to want to protect it, and the more that you know it's going to lead to, to positive change in society and in the, in the environment, and uh, and you know, you know, call it climate change and uh, preserving public lands, and you know, all of that stuff is all intertwined with outdoor recreation, and fly fishing is one vehicle to
0: that end. Um, yeah, I would, I would, I'll, I'll piggyback on that. And as, as you spoke, it kind of reminded me of, of, an interview I heard. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the CEO or founder of Patagonia. I, sure. I, I don't want to say his name right. It's Yvonne Shenard. Am I saying that right? That's as I know it. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's the way to say it. But uh, he was on, you know, meat eater and he kind of talked about his evolution through it. You know, you, you go through these things and, and, and I thought of him, Initially, when you brought up that fly fishing can be the more simplified route to this, you know, you can think yeah. you can make anything as complicated as you want, but essentially, with with fly fishing, if you're if you're kind of if you got a dry fly tied on the end of a stick, I mean, and you're and you're kind of nymphing or you're kind of dropping into to small eddies, you're you're kind of fly fishing right there. And and it and in that interview with um with uh, Steve Rinallo, a meat eater, he kind of just talked about he's gone that route lately where he went in and out of very complicated fly boxes and trying to fly patterns and, and write lines and poles. but recently his endeavor is how simple can i make this and you yep. know, what's the one fly i can use to to attack certain fish and, and whatnot and um and it kind of actually segues into again uh the conversation going to that brought us together was getting into um cutthroat out here um in our first conversation you had mentioned that that's your critter that's your that's kind of your game and, and, a, and a fish that your wheelhouse, I guess. Um, and, and I'll get even more specific on that first question. Um, why C runs, uh, why C run cutthroat? What about that fish, um, kind of lights you up? Cause I mean, there, there seems to be real excitement to, uh, to discuss in that fish when you bring it up. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be make it very, uh, clear that I'm a, a hardcore steelheader at heart. Okay. Um, you know, I, I also fell in love with permit fishing in the flats the first time I did it, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why those are, you know, not always viable options. Um, but cutthroat are, you know, once I, I was one of the first things I really started fishing for, um, in when I, you know, 20 plus years ago, when I really got serious into this. And because uh, they're they're a local native species, and you know they they live all across or up and down the west coast of uh, North America, and they're a fascinating species with a very wide life history. So they have a lot of different um, habitats that they use. Uh, there's a lot of different spawning um, traits, and they live in lakes and rivers and salt water. And they're really just a unique species that is, you know, again, native to our area. And so, you know, I kind of fell in love with fishing for them, uh, just because they're, you know, they're an emblem of the Northwest and they're incredibly beautiful fish. Um, and you know, they're right, you know, where I, I grew up in Kirkland, um, you know, the home of, uh, of Costco and it's, (laughs) you know, 20, 30 minute drive to the saltwater from there. Um, and now I live, you know, within five minutes of the saltwater, um, in in west seattle and so um yeah it's um it's just it's what's here in front of me and it's a really cool fish and uh, i just love the environment they live in i love their behavior and uh, you know how they chase flies and uh, yeah it's just um it's i just fell in love with it and continue to learn every time i go out
0: very cool yeah and, and you know as i it's funny i got into i got into hunting and fishing pretty late in life well into my 30s you know i was always kind of like a super casual fisherman but you know um, a a turkey hunt kind of spawned as turkey hunt in vermont kind of spawned this like outdoors quest um and Mm -hmm. currently i'm on it but what i'm finding is a guy who picked this sport up late the best hunting and fishing spots are the closest and um (laughs) if, if you are in i mean if you're in this greater tacoma seattle area I don't know of a better fishing experience that could be more at hand than, than just kind of because for, for one i mean you correct me if i'm wrong sea run cutthroat is pretty much year round yeah it's catch and release but it's year round they, they kind of move about year round and as long as you kind of have your grips on times and beaches and get in the car i mean if you're i mean you're what 45 minutes to three hours you could be within many 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 handfuls of very productive fishing holes
1: yeah you're totally right and that that brings up something that um that i didn't i mentioned that actually does uh very much intrigue me is the 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 saltwater fishery out there is it's so dynamic and it changes every day with the tides and the wind and the the currents uh you know so Fishing for cutthroat is, it always keeps you guessing. Um, You know, it's not like, oh, we're just going to go to a lake and tie on a coronamid and dunk it down and catch fish, Um, you know, and nothing against that. But the cutthroat thing is so, you know, you have to to think critically about, you know, where you're going to fish, when you're going to fish, how you're going to fish and what, what tides to fish and what beaches to fish on certain tides. And, you know, there's all these variables that go into every single day out there. And it just makes it that much more challenging and that much more fun. Um, and yeah, like you said, I mean, there's a there's a vast array. Just in Puget Sound alone, there's a vast array of of beaches and you know waterways and, and um, you know times and uh, conditions to fish in. And um, it's all right there for you know several million people.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, don't not, hopefully all several million uh, won't jump on it at once. Yeah, um, because <laughs> not so it, much because you know it's it's interesting you follow what's going on fishing wise here in the sound and and even when i moved out here you know it was a lot a lot of it was a lot of it was actually negative for me oh you hear you know they're not going to run this season they're not going to open that one because salmon aren't doing bad and you know you follow the plight of the chinook and it's just it's not great but you know there are some qualities about the sea run where that that fishery seems to be doing really well. From, from your perspective, uh, can, can you speculate um, without putting yourself into too much of a corner or getting yourself into too much trouble? <laughs> uh, but just from a guiding perspective, could, could you speculate as to why the, the Sea Run fishery is doing pretty well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I talk to biologists, and um, so I, you know, I have a little more than speculation based on their findings and, and and you know scientific evidence and studies um but i'm not a biologist so you know i can pass along kind of what i know and but i you know i've seen a lot of things just by observation and being out there and talking to other guides and anglers and you know knowing people that have been doing it far longer than i have and you know it seems that yeah we've got a lot of steelhead salmon troubles and you know we've got some some bright spots and a lot of dark spots um a lot of doom and gloom and the this the uh, anadromous fish front but uh sea run cutthroat fall into this niche where they are they're not netted by the tribes they're not netted by commercial uh, non-treaty you know uh, commercial fishing and they are traditionally something that sport anglers used to go after and would keep you know a couple of fish and take them home Um, they in 19 i think it was 99 uh, washington fish and wildlife made uh, sea run cutthroat catch and release in all of all salt waters in the state and shortly after that like within two or three years the, the population rebounded incredibly well they were actually kind of suffering a bit um, back in the 90s and uh, most of it was due to uh, it's, at least it seems to be have uh, due to you know sport angler pressure hmm. and they're not a prolific fish as far as you know they're not like bluegill where they just spawn and spawn and spawn and that you know they get stunted and there's you know you're You're doing them a favor when you're taking more of them out of the gene pool. Um, You know, sea-run cutthroat are a little more sensitive than that, but it seems, and the biologists have told me this, it seems that they can support a catch and release fishery across Puget Sound. You know, they've been doing this now for like 20 years, and the the total number of cutthroat, uh, it's it seems that they have increased in number, whereas you know, a lot of these other fisheries, salmon and steelhead fisheries, are continually decreasing in number. Um, some of the life histories have changed and they're studying a lot of the spawning habit, habits and and uh, there are some concerns, biologically speaking, but overall it seems like you know, the uh, versatility of these fish to spawn in large rivers and small streams and to go back and forth in the salt and freshwater multiple times in their lifetime or even multiple times within one year, um, the adaptability of these fish is a big strength for them as well.
0: Would their adaptability in, in comparison to certain strains of salmon um would would, could you could you make a general statement along the lines of maybe they're a little bit more adaptable than salmon in general
1: um yeah again non-biologically speaking and more anecdotally um yeah it seems to be that they are more they're more adaptable to conditions and to you know high water low water small streams large streams i mean there's um salmon life histories, you know, uh, are much more limited than say steelhead or, um, sea run cutthroat. Um, for example, like, uh, pink salmon have essentially two life histories. One is a boom year and one is a, a bust year. And that doesn't protect them well from years where, you know, or multiple years in a row where they have bad water conditions in the rivers or hot, you know, water conditions in the ocean. Um, so, uh, pink salmon tend to go in a boom and bust cycle, whereas uh, fish like cutthroat and steelhead have more life cycles that sort of protect them from those boom and bust cycles. And they've got more of a steady through line of population. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's a, that's a, a vast generalization, but that's, um, that's my understanding of it.
0: And, and, and what do you, and to, to clarify with the pink salmon, what do you mean by boom and a bust year um, in, in that sense? So uh, the way my understanding, or when the way you just said it, they kind of only go through two life cycles, uh, but what what do you mean by boom and bust year?
1: Yeah, I guess I didn't explain that very well. Um, so in Puget Sound, or in, the, in Washington in general, uh, pink salmon show up in odd years in heavy, heavy numbers. They show up in even years in very, very small numbers. So you, you won't really, like this year, you won't really see anybody fishing for pinks, you know, in the saltwater or the rivers. You, you might hear people catch a few here and there, but in 2021, there will be another, you know, pink year, and they will. The vast majority of the fish that are out in the ocean, uh, they're only out there for um, for one year. Uh, they will come back, and they will, you know. Sometimes the Puget Sound runs alone, or you know, in the you know millions, like six, eight, ten million. Um, 2019 wasn't very good. It was like a million or a million and a half fish, something to that effect. But it, they're, so if they have a, a bad, uh, bad river conditions or spawning is really bad. Gotcha. And you, in that year that they all come back, let's say next year, 2021, then there won't be a very good survivability for the fish all going out to the ocean. Cause it's all in one big chunk versus spread out throughout, you know, multiple, uh, Life's life histories or life cycles over many years. I got so, that you know, it's like steelhead and chinook and stuff, and will stay like the, the juvenile fish will stay in the river systems often for two, three, four years, uh, and then it'll stay out in the in the ocean for two, three, four, five years, and so you get a big mix of life histories and life cycles that helps protect against um, you know terrible ocean conditions or terrible river conditions, or you know protects against that boom and bust cycle
0: cool and the, cool. So a little bit of history of the fish um and i will say what, what's cool though about the the sea run too is um you know they don't they don't get they they're not going to get overly huge i mean what's the general size i mean what's the average one what's a nice one and what's on the smaller side that folks can expect if they do get out and try to to go after these guys
1: yeah i mean they're they're very typically trout sized and what i mean by that is you know out in puget sound for example you're looking at like average fish is like 10 or 12 inches um you're going to find certainly to find fish you know six eight inches and you know a really nice sea run out there is 18 19 inches there's there are fish that are bigger um you know there's i know plenty of people that have that have caught 20 inch sea runs or say they have Um, i've seen pictures and video of of sea runs that are you know from washington that are 24 26 inches i mean huge huge fish um but those are incredibly rare, and um, and you know should not ever be expected to to be seen. Um, but uh, you know a 16 to 18 inch sea run cutthroat is a hot hot fish, scrappy fish, and especially in the saltwater, they got a lot of pull to them, and uh, and uh, they'll they'll bend a five or six weight over pretty good.
0: Well, I was going to say there's a sporty nature to. I mean. It would seem to, I can I can even remember again going back to that first trout trip I took out to Stevensville with a buddy. We were we just decided to go hammer Pelagic Creek and we were just doing small creek fishing. But you know those native trout were mean and they wiggled. They didn't want to get on the hook and they fought. They they gave everything they had. And, and it's a I, it's the same quality with a with a sea run cutthroat that that native species that native fish ha, just has that desire to to fight, which is it's just it, it's fun to get into when you get into them. Um, so so let's say you, you guys are going to get out there, they're going to start hammering river conditions, and or excuse me, they're going to start they're going to start exploring conditions and get out. Um, in terms of like uh, you mentioned, five or six six weight rod, um, what what would you pair with that? Um, what what are what are some other gear essentials that you're going to need um, in particular? You know, for the guy who's going to be hammering us from the beach just so we can get him out there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, five or six weight rod. A six weight is a little better when it's breezy. And, um, you know, it's often, there's a, almost always a light breeze out there. Uh, you know, waders and boots, of course. And then, uh, you know, for a fly line, you're going to want, want something that's a shooting head. Um, I like an integrated shooting head, which means it's all one line rather than like a head looped to a running line and That just facilitates better casting and stripping. Um, and the like the uh, Rio Outbound or Rio uh, Quick uh, Coastal Quick Shooter are both great lines. Um, the Airflow's got one called the 40 Plus. Um, SA has some good lines. And most of the time, you want to fish a clear intermediate, so something that sinks slowly. Um, the fish do not live in deep water, They're, they can be found in you know, eight or ten inches of water right next to the beach, and, and uh, they can be found, you know, sometimes in ten feet of water. But they'll move and chase flies. So when you are approaching a, a beach or, or approaching the water from the beach or from a boat, for that matter, um, you don't want to ignore the water that is right on the beach. And you know, again, in like less than a foot of water, you'll find these fish sometimes, and huh. they're pushing uh, bait and pushing um, their their prey up onto the beach sometimes to trap them so they can eat them. And the, uh, you know, so when you approach a beach the, a lot of the, the conventional wisdom, you know, from the, the uh, old guard is that you don't even get in the water. You start casting at, when you're standing at the edge of the water and you cast parallel to the beach and then make a fan to where you're casting parallel and then out in the middle and then parallel the other way. And that covers, you know, a, a section of water and then you'll be able to hopefully find fish in that water. Um
0: that means I should be fishing behind me cuz you know as soon as I throw my <laughs> as soon as I throw my waders on I want to get chest high. I mean that's just yeah, what, what you want to do. Yeah,
1: that's you 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 definitely got fish behind you um <laughs> okay. at that point. There there's fish out, you know, in the middle and the uh, resident coho will be out there and uh resident blackmouth they're often run a little deeper. So sometimes you need, you know, all the all the height of your waders and all the distance your cast to get out to them, but um even even you know, I've caught plenty of uh resident coho you know in a, a foot or two of water right next to the beach um, and
0: real quick on the line i want to go back to that um I, so mm-hmm. right now i'm ha- right now i i think i have a decent saltwater line but i've always run a floating line if if, if if i'm already running a floating line um could you perhaps throw a longer leader on that and and maybe give it a little bit more of a weight or not i don't mean a weight on the end but just kind of let the fly do its thing a little bit more yeah. before stripping it in would that be effective? Yeah.
1: Floating lines are fine. Um, and yeah, longer, you know, like a nine foot leader is fine on there. Um, you know, these fish are, they're ambush predators. And we can talk about that a little more, but that basically means they're aggressive and they want to come eat your fly. You know, so when you strip it past a rock, and they're hiding behind that rock. If it the fly is three feet above their head, you know, if they're hungry and they see that fly, they're still going to come and grab it. It doesn't need to go right in front of their face. And... Uh, floating lines are also good for obviously for dry fly situations. So we we also will strip, uh, we call gurglers out there or sliders, uh, poppers. There are dry fly applications uh, of patterns that look like um, you know, struggling bait fish or a crippled bait fish that's like swimming around on the surface, um, and that can be a very effective and fun way to fish as well. Which of course requires a a dry line. So that's that's another a good uh, line to have in your in your arsenal as well
0: oh yeah um, i don't think there's anything better than top feeding you know top fi- i mean yes yeah. they're again i mean it's attractive right i mean i've heard even stories again going back to meat eater Giannis talking about how he used to have clients who by the end of the day they would kind of nip their hooks and they wouldn't even want care about bringing the fish in as much as they just want to watch it eat i mean they're yep it's a fun thing to do
1: yep definitely um, one more important piece of equipment, since we're still on that, that topic, uh, a stripping basket is really important for when you're in the beach or on the beach, okay. because the, the the wave action and the tide and the currents and the kelp and seaweed and all this stuff will um, wreak havoc on your casting ability. So you got to strip your line into a stripping basket, which you wear around your waist. Very cool. And uh, you can, you know, there's plenty of commercial varieties of those from all, you know, all sorts of materials and price ranges and stuff. But, um, that's a must have out there.
0: And then, uh, So more specifics so on the flies that you might, um, use, I mean, you were saying, so I'll fish some different minnow colors and, and whatnot and strip those in, uh, there's some flies that you can uh, go on top and you mentioned gurglers. but in terms of, mm-hmm. in terms of the specific patterns, uh, I mean, are these things so predatory where as long as it's moving and you catch their eye, they're going to get it? Or, you know, is it like anything else where one day something's hot and one day it's not?
1: Um, A little bit of both. I mean, you know, there's certainly um, some truth to the theory that you just tie on a random bait fish pattern and throw it out there. And if they want it, they're going to come eat it, you know. Um, But... There's definitely a little bit of match the hatch, too. You know, uh, certain times a year, you're, you're going to see herring out there and sand eels. Um, certain times you're not going to see those. Um, sometimes a year, you know, like in the winter, they'll chase um, euphocids, which are tiny little shrimp. They'll also chase um, bay ghost shrimp, which are out there. So there's other shrimp patterns. Um, sculpins, another bait fish that's out there all year. Um, so, you know, you, you've got different different types of fish different uh, body shapes so the flies you know look a little bit different uh, again you got shrimp which are obviously not a fish that look you know the flies look totally different uh, so yeah it really depends on you know the time of year and uh, you know again tide cycle currents all this different stuff and uh, whether you know what you're doing you know if you've got a, a three inch you know chartreuse and white clouds are on which is really common Saltwater pattern, and that you're catching a fish here and a fish there. Maybe you want to switch it up and you know, fish some pink or some blue over white or brown over white and try and you know, find a little bit more of what they want, Um, you know. But there's also been plenty of days out there where you know, I'm fishing all sorts of different flies and I know what I should be fishing, and I've seen bait fish in the water and I'm just not finding the fish. So, another thing is that, that no matter what pattern you fish, the fish move a lot. So, if you're on a beach and you're not finding fish move down the beach if you're still not finding fish go find a different beach and then maybe at a different part of the tide cycle you go back to the original beach you were on you know whether it's higher tide or lower tide and you might find fish on that beach at a different part of the tide so what's really important is you know there's all these different food sources out there that we have to imitate with our, our flies but with these fish you have to find them and if you find them, and you're in the ballpark, you're going to find, you know, you're going to catch a few fish. Uh, if you've got the hatch matched, you know, relatively well, you're going to catch even more fish.
0: So, it's fi- finding, and I ask this: uh, finding them to me, you know, I can go on certain beaches, and um, you know, from from what we've talked about previously and what I've read about, you know, what you're really looking for beach-wise is something that's kind of stony and barnacly. or and like you mentioned. You know these things are ambush predators and they're kind Mm -hmm. of trouty in that sense where they'll hide and get stuff and and again um so you but you almost want to match it where that tide is going to be over that spot i mean is that is that oversimplifying it so i mean just kind of paying attention to what certain levels would mimic them being in this condition and then just trying to be in that spot at the right time right place yeah, there's
1: definitely something to that. I mean, it, like, you know, if you've got a beach that you're familiar with, um, you know, so every beach is a little different, right? Some fish better on an incoming tide, some better on an outgoing tide. Some will fish better at high tide or low tide. And you have to sort of learn that for yourself, what your local beaches or your favorite beaches, you know, how they fish. Um, so if, the, if you know a beach and you know at uh, – low tide there is a pile of rocks that's exposed you know that you can go back to that beach at a little higher point in the tide when those rocks are covered up like you were just saying and there will be you know it's good cover right so that that cover didn't even exist three hours earlier but then three hours after you were there when it was low after it's come up let's say uh those rocks be covered up and you can you know, fish around those rocks and hopefully there'll be fish hiding around those rocks, chasing prey, which is much different than in a river where, you know, I mean, the rivers go up and down too, but not nearly so quickly, right? So if you go catch a fish, you know, behind one rock on a river, you can go back the next day and the next day and the next day and have, you know, high confidence that maybe even the same fish is going to be behind that same rock. And so you can get to know the river's Um, you know, more predictably, I guess. Um, Though, of course, you know, obviously rivers have lots of variables themselves, but they just don't fluctuate so quickly. And so that's why I say it's good to learn different beaches and watch them through the tide cycles and find those structure points like pilings and uh, boulders and drop-offs and oyster beds and, you know, overhanging trees and logs in the water, all sorts of different pieces of habitat and structure that, provide cover for these predators to ambush their prey.
0: No, and it's wild that you you bring that up about the the changing conditions from beach to beach. I mean, I've gone out to some spots and, you know, locally going, and there's a nice fishery that I'll go to behind uh, just right out here in Purdy. And it's funny, one day you can go out there and I don't even know if it's safe to wade out the, the tide so high. And then a couple hours later, I mean, you could almost walk. I mean, you got another hundred to a 100 yards of beach you can work with you know it's and it's amazing just how again it, that has to all I mean guys want a challenge whether it's weightlifting or hunting or fishing I mean I think ultimately yeah we all want to catch fish but once you get proficient enough you're looking for that challenge just that challenge of knowing the conditions of this crazy sound are are hard enough let alone trying yeah. to figure out a species
1: yeah for sure and and it's um you know, that's one more reason to, to, you know, go explore your local fishery. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it's not just a, oh, I'm going to go out a few times and I got it dialed and I can just go out after work and I know I'm going to catch a couple of fish and, you know, it's ever changing. And, you know, if you're going to fish in Puget Sound, a tide chart is critical or an app, you know, I've got an app on my phone. I just look at different you know tide uh, stations around puget sound and you know for the days i'm going to go or days i'm going to book and certain days i'll say eh, we should shouldn't fish that day because it's kind of a bunk tide with not much movement let's say and uh you know you go for like three or four days later and the tide is cycle is totally different and you know it's a good tide with a lot of movement um then that's one thing we should mention too is uh you want to fish you know whether you're in a boat or on the beach you want to fish um, a good moving tide and you want moving water to be moving, you know, up or down the beach given, you know, whether it's an incoming or outgoing tide, the currents will change and the cutthroat will use current and use structure to attack their prey. So the current will push bait fish, you know, up or down the beach in, in a certain direction, or there's, you know, eddies that will form or even riffles in certain spots There's certain spots out there that will literally look like a river. And, and that will push and trap the bait fish and the predator fish, you know, be it cutthroat or salmon, know, you know, where to find those spots and where to ambush their prey.
0: And again, super similar to what trout are doing, right? I mean, if you're on a if you're on a yep. drought river, you're gonna you're gonna try and catch a drift into a nice eddy, right? And it's it's the same thing here. So you're you're watching water conditions. Does does things change from the boat as from the beach? I mean, or is just the advantage of a boat being that one, you're casting in a different direction. Maybe have a little bit more clearance behind you if you do need to get big back casts. But you can also scoot to different spots a lot quicker.
1: Yeah, yeah. The boat is, you know, and I encourage people to, to go fish from the beach because it's um, often more educational. When you when you sit on a beach through an entire tide cycle, you'll see the high and the low and the structure on the beach. You'll see how it, you know the currents move and as the tides picks up and as it slows down. But the boat gives you maximum versatility. So if, if there's no fish on a certain beach, you just zip five minutes and go find a different beach or another one and another one. You can hit as many beaches as you want until you find fish. Um, the boat also gives you the advantage of fishing water that is otherwise inaccessible. So, you know, private property, essentially. Um, in Washington, uh, our river laws state that if you gain legal access to a piece of water, you can, as long as you remain within the, the regular high water mark, you can walk up and down the riverbed. And so, you know, it's, it's public property on the saltwater. That's not the case where landowners own to the mean low tide mark. And that essentially means that they own the beach out in front of their property. Mm -hmm. Now where it gets confusing is some landowners, uh, in their, the deed to their property, they do own. To the mean low tide mark, and some landowners do not own that property. But you know, if you run, in, if you're on a beach and you're walking down the beach and you run into a sign that says "private property, no trespassing," uh, if, you know, if you you better be really up to your you know up to snuff on your uh, your um, what is it like county uh, property ownership you know regulations or whatever to know whether that beach is actually public or private if you think you're going to go past the sign. And there's plenty of stories of people getting yelled at or people, you know, um, you know, on the beach and, and they shouldn't be and they get the cops called on or whatever. Um, that's not meant to scare anybody, but it's just something to think about. If you're in a park on a beach, you're going to walk to the end of the park. The, the beach adjacent to the park very well could be private. And So, uh, long story short, the boat, you avoid all that. You can go and fish whatever water you want.
0: Yeah, it's so funny you bring that up because I've always been confused. I, I mean, I was was teaching out of school, and I could. I was asking around. I even went to a guy, a dad who got him. Like, hey man, what's up with water access here in Washington? He's like, "Uh, high water mark. You're fine. And um, I and he, I think he gave me that answer because I brought it up in the context of Montana, where that is a spot where I was trout fishing. And then I went out. My buddy um, owns a spot right in purdy and i went out his backyard and i started walking the beach (laughs) and i'm getting i'm getting looks i'm getting shooed off the property you know and i'm like what's going on i thought i knew what i was doing so there's a there's a difference between what's going and i don't you know i'm a a good rule follower but i i like rules that are like consistent and it'd be nice if it was consistent from fresh to salt water but i guess in washington you just have to know where you are
1: yeah, unfortunately, that's exactly right. It's it's really confusing, and, and it's not like, you know, in California and Hawaii, all beaches are public. Yeah. And, you know, for whatever reason, Washington does not have that law. And, you know, I'm sure it stems from something in the, you know, when it was became a, a state in, about 1889. I'm sure there was, in the early 20th century, there was some sort of thing where they passed a law and said, well, People can own the beach, so...
0: Yeah, without um, without knowing the history, I can probably tell it to you. I'm sure some <laughs> influential gentleman owned a big chunk of beach property, and he wanted it. I mean, and they just... <laughs> I don't yeah, know. He you're just you're
1: probably exactly right. <laughs> just, That's how it usually works. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's... I'm not a conspiracy theorist, because I think generally you can figure them out. I mean, follow the money and follow the power, and you, you figure out what's going on there. I mean, but... Yeah. Yeah, I, I just... I don't know what the right like national law would be, or I don't know if we need a national law, but it just it seems like water access is is super, is super interesting at times. And, you know, and oh, I yeah. I'd imagine even here, it's super interesting now because I mean, isn't there a movement now to like break dams down and, and kind of go backwards in, t- in terms of certain things? And I think well, it was actually pretty recently where a. Uh, is it Elgin or Elby or there was a big dam that just actually they, they're they they're they're going backwards on some of those things. So I even imagine there, you know, stuff that wasn't even a river or was a river won't be anymore. And I mean, it's again, it's it's all ever changing.
1: Oh, yeah. You're talking about the Elwha, which Elwha, is um, that's right. luckily most of that is in Olympic National Park. So it's all public land and, okay, and cool. you know, uh, accessible if you want to go walk. Um, yeah, the Elwha is, a, is you know a really a, a bright spot in a, um, a burgeoning success story where they took out two dams that had been there for a hundred years, uh, dams that had no fish passage and had essentially extirpated you know uh, Chinook runs that that were some of the biggest fish in the world, the biggest Chinook, like a hundred pound Chinook used to run up the the Elwha and steelhead and coho and all sorts of other fish. Um, They've found, you know, just I think it's only been completed, I want to say for three or four years now, that they've already found that the fish are are recolonizing their old habitat upstream. And, you know, being in Olympic National Park, it's got, you know, it's pristine habitat hasn't been developed or logged or anything. And so these fish have a really good chance. The river's got a really good chance of recovering. Um, you know, and, and being a grand experiment for biologists to see what really happens to a river when you take dams out and, you know, it's got intact habitat.
0: Yeah, because again, I think going back to that documentary where I checked out, I mean, like you said, you mentioned those dams are that old, but centuries later, there were still fish hitting their head against that dam, you know. So yeah, they're, very they're really resilient if you yeah. give them a chance. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and the other thing too that's to get not I don't want to not to get too crazy into Chinook I was actually I'm reading a pretty cool book right now um, boys in the boat it's a it's about uh-huh. the, about those fella you know 1936 squad um, uh, and a crew team out of um, University of Washington it's a it's an amazing story in itself but there's a moment in, in the early goings where um, Joe Rance is going out you know hes he's talking about how he had to almost poach four-foot Chinook to survive Um <laughs> What got me was that, you know, in these rivers spawning upstream, he was, you know, you can see this 15-year-old kid just, you know, with a giant Chinook over his shoulder. Um, and to me, that would just be a sight that would I mean, be amazing in itself. And now it's just that size and that fish just doesn't seem to exist in the same, in the same system. So it's hard to even conceptualize that happening. But it would be cool to see it happen again. It looks like we're on that route.
1: Yeah, I mean, in certain, you know, there's – there's like I was saying, there's a few bright spots in the in the Elwha is is one really um, you know hopeful success story that we've got going on and, um, and yeah Chinook are um, are recolonizing the river they they are there's kind of a controversial hatchery that they built where they're collecting uh, broodstock which are wild fish that return that they they grab them and then breed them or spawn them
0: uh,
1: in the hatchery and so it creates like a first generation hatchery fish there, there's some scientific evidence sort of both ways as to whether that is is a good thing or not but uh, and that all went to court and all sorts of stuff but regardless um, they are doing that and um, there are both hatchery and wild fish that are returning to the Elwha in in greater numbers every year so I think I want to say that they've tracked
0: uh,
1: Chinook spawning in the Elwha uh, over 20 miles upstream and it might be it might be as much as like 35 miles upstream. I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, they've got fish spawning, you know, Chinook spawning in the like upper part of that watershed um, and steelhead too. They've got summer and winter steelhead that they've tracked, especially summer steelhead maybe way, way up into the, the uh, upper watershed, which is really, really cool. And the summer steelhead on that, that river were extinct. I mean, they were gone and they just naturally reappeared. There's no hatchery summer steelhead being put in there. And so, um, again, it's one more point to that: give a river a chance, give fish a chance, and they will take care of themselves.
0: Well, to, and another point too: it's like you know, I was having this conversation with a friend recently, just because he he kind of tuned me into I think the I think the documentary was called Damnation that I kind of tuned into, and we were yeah. just on this conversation about it, and I'm like, you know, I don't know ever what's right, but it seems to me that human intervention, yeah, we should recognize our status as like you know intellectual agents and yeah we should steward things but uh, more and more like i'm kind of sorting out a perspective where if we kind of if there's an issue if we need to just back off and best we can return it to what it was nature's a much better corrector than we are developer i think in 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 terms of some of those things Uh, it's just i think you're you're dead on yeah i think that yeah well that situation you're bringing up you know you know speaks to it and um you know, Olympic National Park's an interesting place. We were actually just up there on Sunday with the family hiking. We were doing the staircase loop, and it's a nice stream that runs yeah. through there. And I know that Still commerce, yeah. some of your some of your fishing, too, I mean, I, I'm kind of fixated on cutthroat because we're going to be hammering them. But, you know, I text you after we set up that trip. I was like, man, that the the hiking and, and the trout fishing and the Cascades seems really cool. But, two, you know, another fishery that's really close is it's all catch and release, and the season just opened up here on June 1st. But, um you know, trout and Olympics, another one, that's an, it's another, you know, another great fishery that's right here locally.
1: Yeah. You know, whether it's the Olympics or, you know, the, the Green River, the Snoqualmie Forks, I mean, the upper ends of most of our Puget Sound river systems have resident rainbows and cutthroat in them. Mm. And it's a lot of fun to take a really, you know, lightweight little two weight or three weight rod. And, and, you know, you don't need waders and, just a box of flies and just go hiking, you know, in the summer and, and just kind of disappear. And, you know, with as many people as we have in this state, um, you can still, you know, park wherever you want off the road and hike down to the river. And the further you walk, the fewer people you're going to see. And there's a lot of places where you're not going to see anybody. So yeah, that's a a wonderful fishery. And that's what I cut my teeth, you know, both learning how to fish and guiding, um, was you know up around North Bend and Snoqualmie Forks, and uh, just fishing, you know, hiking small streams, and it's still a lot of fun. It's still a really a beautiful way or a, a fun way to get out in the you know beautiful terrain and geography.
0: What got me about it too, again, going you know, as a guy who picked up fishing late, uh, picked up hunting late, uh, picked it up with three kids, picked it up with a wife, picked it up a full time full time job. It's like oh, the closest spots, and then you know to take that the next step, and again with what Cutthroat too is. You know, my kids can fish on the beach and where I'll sit there and I'll work a stream all day or I'll work a tide all day and I have the patience and, you know, I search for those opportunities because it's, it's in, the, in a crazy paced life, that's almost meditation, right? And but what will allow me to do that is if my kids can kind of play in the creek behind me and, and there were some really cool spots along. Um, that little hike where you know the kids could have at it in their little playground and then they could dip in and practice in and we could get it so it's a it's a family affair in the making where you can all be outside enjoying it
1: yeah definitely i mean you know fly fishing is you know lends itself well to you know all sorts of demographics and age class and everything you know children um you know i've taught kids as young as you know five six seven years old and um you know people in there you can do it you know, until you can't walk. And even then you can just get in a boat and sit there and fish. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's very much family oriented. It's, you know, it can be individually oriented. Um, that's, again, goes back to fly fishing as something to offer everybody, you know, take the family out to a beautiful place. You do a little fishing, maybe they fish, maybe they don't, but you're exposing your kids to nature and to wild places and conservation. And, um, you know, they're, they're learning something and being enriched for it. And, you know, you're having some fun and, um, you know it's um you're exactly right i mean it's uh, it's a great way to just escape you know whether it's by yourself or, or with your family and um and you know be um, more fulfilled and uh, be able to go back to work and you know be happier and more productive and um just uh to um you know fly fishing just does all that for you
0: well, let, let me ask you you bring up kids and i'll ask you a sneaky question and i'm going to ask it i'm asking really for me but i'm going to ask it in reference to my kids so i kind of seem like i know what i'm doing as i'm out there practicing or teaching my kids how to fly cast a little bit better um you know we don't really want them to get a lot of distance you know they can't beat their dad but if i if i want to tune them up a little bit just just a quick hit and tip um for the entry level fly fisherman, just uh, because like i said before as i entered the podcast with you to me the c-run cutthroat casting seemed to be more like the casting you would need where you're going to try to want to get that nice tight loop and target and, and get it out there as opposed to just kind of you know letting letting a drift run through through an eddy but you know there is technique to it and as a guy who's you know you've taught a couple kids and you've been doing it so long in terms of uh sorting out that loop and uh keeping yourself from untying wind knots and and and, and unhooking fish i mean yeah, What's an entry-level key to success?
1: Um, you know, um, there's quite a few basics, right, to a fly cast, and um, you know, the cutthroat fishing is is, you know, you, I've have t- enjoyed teaching people how to become better casters. It's it's certainly tough if you are a rank beginner, um, if you're a novice and you you know got a little bit of skill, you could you'll do just fine, but uh, you know the basics, um, you know, you're looking at uh, your false cast should be between 10 and two. So you stop at 10, stop at two as you go back. Right. And each stroke, you should accelerate through the stroke to a firm stop. So you firm stop at 10 and firm stop at two. And this is a lot easier to, uh, to see visually rather than describe, you know, on a, on a podcast. But, um, as you make the stroke through the air, Um, You know, think about a clock face, right? You're gonna go on your forward stroke And you're gonna stop at 10 o'clock hard stop that rod flexes or loads and then that creates the loop Like you were talking about the loop turns over or straightens out in front of you And then you start your back cast you accelerate through the stroke Make a firm stop on the back at 2 o'clock and then do the same thing you wait for that loop of line to turn over or straighten out behind you, and then you can make your forward stroke again. So the, those, that's the basics of an overhead cast, you know, as much as you can describe in one minute. But the, the, you know, if you wanna talk about tips, um, the biggest thing that I see with people is that they go too fast. You know, they, every other sport you do, you know, the harder you hit it, well, I, should, I shouldn't say it, but most things, you know, the harder you swing, the harder you hit it, the harder you throw it, the further it goes. Um, and in fly casting, that's, it's a lot more finesse than, than, um, you know, just like trying to, to swing a, an ax or something. Um, and the other thing too, is a lot, uh, almost every sport we have, we, um, participate in, there's a wind up and a follow through in fly casting. There is no wind up and no follow through. And that's tough for people to break that habit.
0: No, it's, it's different, you know, and like what, what I would almost compare it to is, um, you know, even a sport that I'm into and <coughs> you coach folks, you know, Olympic style weightlifting, you know, you, you look at it from afar and it's a, it looks like a grip it and rip it mentality. But, you know, when you dive into the technique of what it takes to go ground to overhead um, with maximal load uh, and you get into flexibility, technique, accelerating the bar and, you know, establishing a connection and an acceleration through your movement, not just, you know, going zero from a hundred right away, which is, you know, ultimately if you lose connection with the barbell, it's, 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 it's not good. You'll, you, you it's going to crash on you. Bad things happen. And as you say, accelerate to a stop, it just reminds me, I'm always coaching my athletes to accelerate to the catch, accelerate to the finish position. Um, and, and that's ultimately what you want with a, with a good, a good snatch or good clean and jerk. You're, you're, you, the barbell should gain speed to where you establish control over it and then stand up with it. And, um, you know um you know it's hard to start the weight off the floor right and mm-hmm. as opposed to some other lifts where you do like a jerk where you actually can get the bar established on your body and then dip drive to a finish it's a little bit easier you know uh, but I, I i that's the thing too i as we talked our first time in terms of my own fly casting stroke i just realized you know i was falling victim to some of those things it's really hard to start that back cast or that forward cast slowly and then accelerate to a stop as opposed to you really almost want to jerk it out of that 10 and 2 o'clock position instead of just kind of slow rolling to the opposing 10 o'clock and 2 position which is um but man when you get it right you know you did that line stacks up straight in front of you it's effortless and um it's I I went, I didn't golf, but I golfed with a guy one time and I, I remember smoking a drive the right way or I, you know, I got it on the green, whatever happened. And he goes, that'll cost you about $10,000. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, those are the ones that you, those are the ones that get you to come back to the next one. And, um, it didn't happen with golf, but it certainly happened with fly fishing. I mean, there's, when it, it's one of those things, man, that when it goes right, it's just, it's just awesome. It's just really cool. Yeah, so, yeah. It's
1: like like hitting it on the sweet, you know, hitting a ball on the sweet part of the bat, or throwing a perfect yeah, spiral. Or that was easy. <laughs> whatever it is, yeah. You go,
0: oh yeah, cool.
1: And and when you're casting a fly rod and the rod loads correctly and you feel yeah. that, yeah, yeah, you immediately know. I mean, even you could be the first time you picked up a fly rod and you'll go, oh yeah, that feels good. That feels
0: right. Yeah. It's so a, it's amazing. And um, uh, as we kind of close this thing out, um, there's a the gentleman who kind of put us together, my uncle, uh, who kind of kind of connected us through the trip that we're going to take here. Um, when we were talking about him on our, our previous conversation, uh, you mentioned him as being fishy, and I've not been able to drop that, and I've just been trying to tune into mm-hmm. that. and And for you, who's you've made a career fishing, you love fishing, you know, you're into it from a from all angles. As I can stand, as I can, you know, uh, I can stand witness to right now in terms of the technique, the fish, the, the where these animals live. But what makes what makes a dude fishy as, as a guy who's watched guys come in and out of his own boat and been doing it forever?
1: Uh, what makes somebody fishy? Yeah, for, is, for you when you see it. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's somebody who, you know, just has like a, some sort of innate sense. I mean, like your uncle, and I think it's really hard to describe because I, I work hard to catch fish, and I, I think I'm relatively good at it. Um, but I'm not fishy. Um I just like people like your uncle, he kinda you know, he's like talking and looking at other things and he just you know, he throws his fly out there and he does it, you know, just right and he swings a fly through and bam, fish eats and he goes, Oh, you know, it looks like a big one. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is. You know, and his and his fishing partner's just looking at him, slack jawed, who's a way better angler than him and you know, technically speaking. Um, and you know, and then it gets wrapped around a root ball and we get it off and you know, it's way downstream where he should lose it and he doesn't and then he gets it back. And then, you know, I almost fall in and when I'm trying to net it, and then, you know, finally we get it in the net and he just kind of goes, Oh, that was fun. (laughs) You know, it's like a, it's, it's just, you know, and that, I mean, that's makes him sound, sound simplistic, which he's obviously not, but he's, he's just fishy. He just like he, whatever he does uh, whether he knows it or not, he's just, he's putting the fly in the right place at the right time. And the fish are, you know, the fish are eating it. And he knows how to fight fish again, whether he knows, you know, specific technique or not, he knows how to fight, you know, big fish. And he knows how to cast in, in the right spots and retrieve the fly correctly. And, you know, I, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of a funny thing that, that, uh, some people have and some people don't. So I, I know plenty of guys that and gals that have, uh, a fishy sense to them where they're you know you just look at them in awe and you go how did you do that
0: so i'll ask you this again i'll be a little bit um i'll probably i'm going to ask you this question now and i'll ask you <laughs> this same question um after our trip here in a couple weeks uh, how long does it take you to recognize if somebody's fishy when they're on your boat um is it a right away that's thing? a really good
1: question <laughs> Take a and day or is it different I don't know honestly I think it's probably okay. different with every person I think personality probably you know I'm this I'll just kind of think about it right now off the top of my head but I, I think personality certainly has something to do with it I mean okay. some people are are, uh, are you know like we were talking about before super technical and and some people are just kind of like yeah I'm just gonna go fishing you know so uh, it seems to me that I think the fishy people are the ones that are say, yeah, I'm going to go fishing and you know, have a good time. And the super technical people are, are not necessarily better or worse anglers or catch more or catch less, but they work harder at it. Uh, and maybe that's more enjoyable too, for them to, to take it from that angle
0: yeah, to each his own, to each his yeah, own. Uh, be issue, so I'm hoping I may hoping uh, whether I impress you with my fishiness or not, um, I'm looking forward to getting out there and learn a little bit more, um, you know, I'm not, I don't see myself as a guy owning a boat, but I've been on enough to know that I enjoy being on other folks. So yeah, um, I'm, that's, uh, that's smart. <laughs> you don't need
1: to own a boat, it's a pain. Yeah.
0: So I'm excited to get on yours, Brett. Um, it's really cool. Uh, and what what I'll put to you um, is kind of the closing thought. I know you have uh, tail out anglers. Um, I know we're coming out of COVID. I know that, you know, the way you were talking to me. In our first recording, you know, you were particularly uh, hit in an interesting way with with um, you know with 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 stay at home, stay safe orders. But as we're coming out of them, I know that I've also been texting with you, been get out in the water, so I'm I'm fired up for that. I think I think I can do my part by supporting you by you know scheduling trips and and whatnot. But um, you know that that might be my closing thought on this. You know, as as restrictions lift, and if you are into the outdoors, there's a there's a handful of folks who are you know might have been suffering for a few months of uh, lack of income. I think maybe, you know rather than rather than get an interesting um, protest wise, maybe the best thing you can do for your community is is support a local fishermen, You know support a local h- guide somehow. Um, but I'll put it to you, man. I mean we've been on for an hour and I've been asking the questions. But if there's a, a closing thought, whether you know whether to prom- promote tail walk, uh, excuse me out anglers or you know, um, I'll kick it to you for a closing thought as we kind of tie up the show. Sure, I mean, um,
1: yeah, I mean, the entire fishing and fly fishing world's been hit real hard by COVID, and um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my wife was still working, and mm. uh, you know, but yeah, I've had no income, you know, for uh, for over two months, and it, it was tough. I and mean, they've now opened some uh, or lifted some restrictions, and I'm back guiding, and I've got some really great clientele, and I'm really appreciative of you know, people wanting to go fishing and giving me business. Um, and, uh, you know, I, a big deal is, uh, support your local fly shop. I don't care where you live. Um, do you, you know, Walmart doesn't need your business. Amazon doesn't need your business. Um, your local fly shop needs your business. You know, as far as fishing related stuff, go, I, I can't really speak to, you know, work to other stuff, but if you're going to buy a fly fishing gear, buy it from a, a local independently owned fly shop. And if you don't have one locally, find a brick and mortar, you know, pro shop that is owned by, you know, by uh, ind- independently owned and uh, support them because the fly shops are a critical component of the fly fishing industry. And, um, one, you know, it's one industry that hasn't been ruined by, uh, the big box revolution and, and, uh, information and, and teaching and all that stuff is, is critical. Um, and it all comes from, from fly shops. So that'd be my, yeah, my, uh, I like it. plead to <laughs> listeners.
0: I love it, you know, and there's, I, I, I talked about this survey. There's a, there's a great strength coach that I, you know, he's my kind of like my professional spirit animal and he's a guy that mm-hmm. I've, um, I've got like a internet friendship and I've met him a handful of times in person, a guy named Brett Bartholomew, who's a great strength coach based out of Atlanta. Uh, he's got a great book, Conscious Coaching. Um, everyone should go check it out and check out his resource. He's doing some cool webinars, but he put out a really interesting piece of information to me where he polled a group of people. And it was like, should you support local business during COVID? And everyone's like, yeah. And then at the same breath, it was like, okay, well, how do you feel about influencers trying to, to make money during the COVID epidemic? And people were like, no. But then, in the same way, it's like two of the same thing, right? We all need to survive here. And just because someone's a, a, personal trainer, they're still local, right? So it's just it's interesting. But it, your your comments on that um, made me think about that you know support local support your local people you know support the people in your community i think that's super important and um I'll, yeah i'll, I'll tip of the cap to somebody uh gig harbor fly shop when i first got here i was teaching at saint nicholas in gig harbor and uh i didn't know a dang thing about where to go and uh i walked in there they brought me on their website we picked out a few spots and uh they were great with information and uh um, my stripping and basket is a uh is uh purchased from gig harbor fly shop and the floating line uh brett that i'll be uh you know hammering cutties on uh was purchased at gig harbor fly so um i'm with you on that one man i think that's a great way to go yeah right on man well cool and then how can folks find you I w- hopefully we can connect with some folks enough who who want to take you up on a trip and um schedule something with you um i know we have it's uh tailoutanglers.com, but uh where else can folks find you
1: yeah, that, that's my website, and there's a lot of information on there. Um, I've, I'm uh, also on Instagram um, at tailoutanglers. Anglers. Uh, those are the only two sort of social media things that I do, um, and my like phone number and email and stuff is on on there, so uh, people can get a hold of me through that. And uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to talk shop with people or answer questions. You know, book trips. Um, you know, whatever it may be. I do some travel, um, so if you want to go fish in Belize or you know to alaska or whatever else you know, we can talk about that kind of stuff too and uh we can talk about cutthroat so yeah so that yeah. that's
0: how you hooked up with jay if i, if I remember correctly from the first one you guided him uh-huh. in alaska and then did you also guide him are you like his personal guide do you go to you have you take because he he's he goes all over the place
1: yeah um no i wish and then i could just <laughs> stop doing everything else um
0: put that out to no
1: (laughs) yeah uh no we fished a couple of times in puget sound for cutthroat and uh and you know his fishiness came through there where he um spanked both of his partners um both days so yeah um so you got a lot to a lot of work to do when we go out
0: well so you know i'm pretty strong at least so if it gets to it i'll just throw it in the water we'll work that out perfect Um, (laughs) we'll have a little fun with it but no it's uh it's gonna be great it's gonna be fun uh and no i I, I don't, I get competitive lots of things, but like whenever I get to the outdoors, whether it's fishing or hiking or hunting, I kind of just check out all the competitiveness and I'm just, you know, not to be cliche, but honestly, man, I'm just, I'm happy to be there because, you know, I I said, I mentioned it before, there's just a frenetic pace to life now, especially even where I'm at with three kids and, you know, personal Mm -hmm. training and coaching and, you know, working in a school system, it's just a hundred miles an hour, but man... There's nothing better than getting outdoors and um, and just letting it loose and just enjoying the sun. I'll ask you one last question on that. As a guy who makes his living doing that, do you have to go the other way to kind of ramp things up? I mean, that, that's, just, that's just an interesting thought that just came to mind. You know, guys like me are searching for a moment to check out, but you're taking the guy out there to check out. So, I mean, um, again, are, what are you doing on your downtime? I guess is the better question.
1: Um, well, first of all, hearing, I always love hearing clients say that they're just happy to be out there and sometimes they're lying, but that, you know, the, the angler who is worried about fish numbers or catching the bigger fish or the, whatever it is, that's not the most enjoyable person to guide. It's more stressful. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, I love you know in Puget Sound and, and and on rivers you can see all sorts of cool fish and wildlife and terrain and you know the mountains and the, the water and I mean everything it's, so it's, it's a whole experience, um, but uh, you know so it it, it kind of depends like sometimes I want to catch the fish more than the client so there is kind of like you saying ramping up and like you know all that kind of stuff I want to show my client a good time and. You know, but at the same time, like I want to catch fish. Like I, if I'm not, if we're not catching fish, I can get frustrated even when the client is not, you know, they're just having a good time or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's it's really visible like in steelhead fishing where it's, you're looking for one fish for the day. You know, when you're fly fishing, you're looking for that one fish. And many days go by where you don't catch that one fish. Um, and, but it's more frustrating to me usually than it is to clients. Cause you know, the clients that understand that and the guys that are going steelhead fishing, that's, you know, they get it. But if somebody's paying me to put them on fish and I can't put them on fish, even when that's part of the, the deal, yeah. it's still frustrating. It still makes me want to become a better guide. So, um, yeah, you know, it, <laughs> I definitely get ramped up and get charged up and, and, uh, you know, a good day on the water your guide isn't always working hard as he is on a hard day on the water there
0: you go well um again i'm looking forward to it brett it's been a ton of fun uh folks if you want to check brett out it's at Tailout anglers on the instagram and um www.tailoutanglers.com uh find them schedule a trip get after it and um don't forget to uh train hunt and live your best life possible brett man thanks a ton it was awesome and i'm so looking forward to our trip man
1: Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate having me on, and uh, I will uh, talk to you soon.